This week on Mash and Sackcloth, Scott tells us what he would have done if he knew we were coming. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked the cake. <laughs> I'd have baked the cake. I'd have baked the cake. Hello and welcome back to Mash in Sackcloth, the only show that can mash potato, but the only split either of us can do is banana. (laughs) I hear that. (laughs) With me today, as always, he stole my swizzle stick, but he can keep it. He's Scott Judge. Swizzle, who swizzle, swizzle. Those are my favorite pins, by the way, the swizzle pin. Great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the name of them. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. None whatsoever. They're writing utensils called. Yeah, they're swizzle pins. That's what they're called. Great. Oh, that's shoot. so good. Um, and as for me, well. By now, you should know what I'm going to say. I'm still very, very sorry we're doing this. I'm Zach Geiler. We are the show that began as Rotten or Righteous that was uh, designed to review faith-based movies. But then, for some reason, one of us got the idea to review MASH, and here we are. But luckily, this week we'll be reviewing episodes 9 and 10 of the beloved war comedy classic. So that means... We only have 256 more episodes to go. Boy, we're just whittling it down. Yeah, it's, it's happening so so fast. <laughs> you know, one of these days you're going to be like, all right, I got a new plan. We're going to go 20 episodes at a time and just try to get a general theme from them and throw in a couple of the quick jokes, how many other uh, rules and laws would have been broken, and uh, uh, we'll just move on from there. You know, as long as we keep... Keeping our recording time down as slow as we have been. And, uh, no, I have no problem with this because, one, I've said this before, I I do no preparation for this show anymore. I just go on to mash.fandom.com and look up someone else's episode summary, which they have done for every single episode. And, uh, it only takes 40 minutes to watch two episodes of Mash. So I'm, I'm totally, I'm, I'm, I'm happy as a clam. Whatever. We're rocking uh, and rolling. This week, before we dive into the uh, discussing the first episode that we're discussing this week, episode number nine of MASH, titled Henry, please come home. I, I do want to share with you a, uh, a a news article I found. Because, Scott, let me ask you first and, and foremost, uh, if you were to come up with two adjectives that described me, what would those adjectives be? That's right, grizzly uh, and macabre. So I found a news story. Macabre, macabre. You know, we were close because I was going to say hairy, grizzly, hairy, same thing. But macabre, I don't even know what that means. It's um, it's French for sexy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, boy, you didn't hit the nail on the head there. Do you want me to look up the definition M-A-C-O-B-R-E? for you? M a c o b r e. Disturbing and horrifying because of involvement with uh, or depiction of death and injury. Macabre. Well, I have seen you on some mornings before when you first got up. Anyways, I found this grisly and macabre news article titled Grizzly 18th Century Love Notes Sewn with Human Hair to be Displayed at London Museum. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be horrible. I mean, just because it's human hair. It literally says grizzly in the title. Anyways, let's let's yeah. just learn. Let's learn about this. Anna okay. Marie. How, how do we how do we know that you're pronouncing that right? 
Why is it not Macabre? Okay, let me pull out my digital assistant. Hey Siri, <laughs> how do you pronounce macabre? <laughs> here we go, right oh. here. Macabre. Here's how the British do it. Macabre. Macabre. Ah. So I'm an American, See? so I'm going to pronounce it American. Uh-huh. I'm Britain. You're West Virginian, so you're not even going to speak English. Um, <laughs> See right there, macabre. <laughs> Representing or personifying gen. <laughs> so we were both right. No, <sighs> Anna Marie Radcliffe likely embroidered the message with the hair of her husband, James Radcliffe, who was executed in 1716 for rebelling against the King of England. Are we into the area of macabre yet, Scott? She embroidered uh, a love note. She embroidered a love note with her dead husband's hair. Yeah, that's a little grisly. Okay, it's a little macabre. I'm I'm glad that we're all on the same page. <laughs> After her husband was executed in 1716, Anna Maria Radcliffe sat down to do some embroidery. She used the usual tools for cloth. She used the bed sheet from his Tower of London prison cell, and for thread, she used human hair possibly plucked from his severed head. This em- <laughs> this embroidered bedsheet is an extraordinary item, which would have taken months or years to create, explained Beverly Cook, curator of social history at the Museum of London. The care and devotion speaks to Anna's personal devastation and remarkable character, determined to protect the memory of her husband long after his death. Anna Marie's husband, James Radcliffe, the third Earl of Derwentwater, was executed February 24, 1716, for his involvement in the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715. James and other rebels had tried, and failed, to put the son of a deposed Catholic king back on the throne. James was sent to the Tower of London to await his beheading, though Anna Maria often joined him there. James also sent her love letters, in which he called her his dearest worldly treasure and urged her to be courageous and not melancholy. It would be lovely to think that they were lying together beneath this sheet, said Cook, noting that the sheet didn't look too worn and may have only been used during his four-month stay in the tower. Obviously, we can't prove that, but it's likely that she conceived their daughter at that time. Following James's execution at the age of 26, his heart was sent to an Augustinian convent, Anna Maria was given his body, with his head sewn back on. That would have given her opportunity of removing some of his hair, said Cook, noting that Anna Maria kept some of her husband's hair in a locket. And we do know that, obviously, taking locks of hair was quite a common thing for people to do. Cook also speculated that Anna Anna Maria used both James' hair and her own, since the hair sewn into the bedsheet looks like two distinct colors. Other decorations of the sheet include flowers, leaves, and a wreath in the shape of a heart. Unlike the love message, these additions were stitched with linen thread. Anna, Marie, or Anna Maria later fled the country with her children, settling in Brussels in the hopes of raising them Catholic. Sadly, she died in 1723 from smallpox. But the bed sheet that Anna Maria had embroidered with human hair lived on. Generations of James supporters and other activists guarded it over the centuries until the Museum of London obtained it in 1934. In the end, the execution of rebels like James Radcliffe staunched but did not stop the push by Jacobites to restore a Catholic to the throne. Though they failed in 1715 to place the old or to place the old pretender James Stuart, son of the deposed Catholic King James II and VII of England and Scotland, on the throne. His son, Charles Edward Stuart, led the next Jacobite rebellion in 1745. However, Stuart also suffered a bloody defeat. Indeed, the bedsheet represents one part of England's violent history. It will be part of an executions exhibit at the Museum of London Docklands in October 2022. The exhibit will also display other items from 700 years of execution in England, such as clothing worn by King Charles I at his beheading in 1649, a gallows recreation, and letters written by the condemned. Sounds fun. What a wonderful family excursion this would make. Just a nice family outing. 
Public executions. It would be interesting. Well, of course. Public executions became embedded in the landscape and culture of London, influencing people's daily lives, explained Muriel Jeter, another curator at the Museum of London. Hints of this uncomfortable past can still be seen in the city streets today, and executions will allow visitors to explore this grim but fascinating aspect of London's history through a major ex- exhibition for the first time. Though Anna Marie's bedsheets is quote, a sort of relic to Catholic martyrdom, as Cook puts it, it also represents a wife's dedication to her husband, even beyond the grave. And I bet you're wondering this what was actually written on this bedsheet. I am too. I wish they would have put that in the article. Let me try to find it. That now, is it's, definitely macabre. Why did they send his heart to a monastery? I mean, have you ever met a Catholic? That's just what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and no. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, if you die Catholic, you send your heart to a monastery. Now, I was baptized. Uh, I, I was baptized with a Jerry Rig Catholic baptism as a baby by my Catholic grandmother. Hold, hold so, up, hold up, hold up. Did you just say you were baptized with a Jerry Rigged infant baptism? Yes, by my grandmother. I, I thought I told the okay, story on the podcast before. Did I not? <laughs> my my I father. Don't think so okay, well, let me tell it. My father, of course, is. A member of the church, so he refused my grandmother, who was a staunch Catholic to the day of her death, to allow me to be baptized uh, as an infant. So my grandmother, who would often watch me as a young tot, uh, took some holy water from her local parish and held me in one hand over her bathtub and baptized me herself. <laughs> it's not funny, but... And, and, and it's not that I think it's funny, but I do... To me, that showed the depths of that woman's love for me. I don't agree with infant baptism, but if you're that concerned with the soul of your of your little baby grandson, and that you've you've been taught wrongly your whole life that babies need to be baptized, then Mm -hmm. she truly loved me. That she was willing to go through or willing to baptize me herself, thinking to herself, "I'm not a priest, but this has got to be better than nothing." Uh, You're right. That's a lot of love. And by the way, the, the bed sheet that was woven in the hair of a dead man um, reads, The sheet off my dear, dear Lord's bed in the wretched Tower of London, February 1716. Anne, C of Darwent equals waters. And she even embroidered a nice little hairy cross. That's just too creepy. I don't think it's too creepy. You know, I think and this actually should have been at the, should have been at the end of the episode under... Uh, your day could have been worse. I don't think it... I mean, Scott, people in the old times did some weird, weird things. I mean, in the 1800s, people were... In the 1800s, people were, were taking pictures of their dead relatives because that was the only time they could get a picture of them. And so there were... I saw some a, guy on Facebook just Sunday that put a picture of his dead mom on there. I've FaceTimed a funeral before. We've all done weird things when it comes to dead people. <laughs> Yes, you did, did <laughs> Yes, you did. <laughs> I, 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 put, I, put, I put that on my resume. Do did you, you really? No. Uh, yeah, a funeral videographer. <laughs> you should have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have this question. I'm obviously not going to say who it is, and it, we'd laugh about it now, but do you think I would have been asked to do that task if... I wasn't me. He had a whole. He had a. He had a pick of like ten different men. Uh, half of them at least had access to an iPhone. Yeah. But out of all of those men, I was the one that was assigned this macabre responsibility. <laughs> and you did a good job, from what I hear, too. I don't understand. I don't think. I don't know if that speaks very highly of me or very lowly of me. I mean, all I'm saying is you don't you don't hire the most respectable uh, member of society to be the grave digger. What, one oh, thing. Goodness. One thing. One thing we weren't warned about in preaching school when it comes to the topic of death is that no one told us that when you are the minister of a funeral, there's that time where they close the casket. And the whole family walks out, but you're required to stay in that room 
to make sure yeah. that the jewelry's not being pocketed by anybody that they take off of the body. And you have to watch them close that casket. And mm-hmm. what you may or may not understand, but a, a casket's actually, when you see it at a, a viewing or whatever, it's actually on a raised platform. And so the first thing they mm-hmm. do when they close the casket is they put this key in and it lowers the body down. And it is the single most, I don't know, uh, it's like the, a pure it's definition of finality, you know? Cause, yeah. And then they close the lid and they screw that down too. So it's not mm-hmm. just like a latch. So if you wake up in that coffin... There's no getting out, man. There's no... I mean, even if you're able to get the person out of the ground, unless you have that special key that unscrews the lid, you're done. And that's yeah, why... There's no I'm, bell. And that's why I want to be cremated from the neck down. I don't care what you do with my body, or what, what you do with my body. All I ask is I want every single organ in me that is essential to my living to be removed. I want it to be 100% sure that I am as dead as dead comes because the one thing I can think of worse than dying is being thought dead and buried alive. Being being only mostly dead. So next week, we'll talk about the 10 most famous people who were buried alive and how scratch marks were found on their exhumed coffin and they died in excruciating agony. That would be horrible. But that's it for this week's edition of Death Talk. (laughs) God bless. Have a great week, folks. Now let's go ahead and do our Mash and Sackcloth episode for all one of you, maybe, that is left listening to this episode. (laughs) Thank Titled, Henry, Uh, Please Come Home. Uh, At the top of this, this has been, out of the ten episodes we've watched, this has been my favorite one. Yeah, this one's good. I have laughed, I laughed out loud more from this episode than any other episode that we've watched so far. In the OR, Frank has an argument with Ginger Bayless again, just like the one he had during the pilot episode, this summary says. And this time, it's over the type of suture to use. See, Ginger saw that the person he was operating on had an infection, so she's like, the best thing to use for this is cat gut. And he was like, no, I want silk. He was like, no, I want the hair from a beheaded man from back in the 17th century. You know, I, I'm going to side with Frank <laughs> real quick here. Because I just looked up what cat gut actually is. And it's literally cord that is prepared from the natural fiber found in the walls of animal intestines. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mainly sheep and goat intestines. But sometimes, if they're hard up and can't find any sheep or goats around, they'll use cattle, hogs, horses, mules, or donkeys. Why is it called cat gut? Awesome. Why didn't they call it donkey gut? Or sheep gut? And coming out of the OR, or the OR, as I like to call it, Frank tells Henry that, or that he wants to file insubordination charges against Ginger. Because he's... Frank, but, uh, you know, the other doctors, Pierce and Honeycutt they, they, and, and Mr. Jones, Dr. Jones, uh, they don't want that to happen because Frank's a kind of a, 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 a turkey. Jerk. Yeah. But before the discussion gets any further, Radar comes with news that General Hammond has awarded the 4077th a special citation for achieving 90% efficiency rating, the highest by any medical unit in Korea. I've always wondered why they called it citations, because the only citation I've ever gotten was like a speeding ticket. It was a it was a bad thing. <laughs> right. I've never I've never received a citation with positive uh, with something positive behind it. So whenever I hear someone's getting a citation. I'm like, oh, what'd they do? What is the definition of citation? Oh, this will be fun. Look at this. For the 50th According time this episode. Webster, it is an official summons to appear as before court. An act of quoting is a formal, oh, this is uh, uh, number three, a formal statement of the achievements of a person receiving an academic honor, specific reference in a military dispatch to meritu- meritorious performance of duty. And that 
is our third word we stopped the show to define. So, we're off we to a... If we smarter, we wouldn't have to do that. <laughs> I mean, I, I context clues, I'm pretty sure I could have came up with that. But still... It's better to be thorough. So next thing we know, Hammond's visiting the camp to present a reward to a reward to present an award to Henry, and then shocks everybody by by announcing that Henry's being transferred to Tokyo for training and administrative duties, which means Ooh. that which means Frank is going to take over as commander, and he. The, the summary here on mash.fandom.com says becomes a tyrant, but I think that... Becomes. He, he I, is. But I don't think you can be a tyrant without power. Yeah. So now it's going to come to reality. I mean, you never heard Which like... Frank being like, in charge. You would never call a homeless person a tyrant. I mean, they could be the meanest person alive, but they can't be a tyrant because they don't have any power. Well... But what if they've taken power of like the homeless area? Like they're the King Could Street. They then? They're the King Street yeah. person. Yeah. The Street Gang. The Street Gang. I don't know. No, the Street. I mean, gang. to me, that's possible. Yeah. If I was the Street, if I was the Street King, I would never wear clothes. <laughs> You'd be the Street King. No, so that way I would be the shrieking. Street King. Streaking The Streaking Street King. Shrieking Street King. The Shriek. And I would also talk in a high pitched voice. Uh, and so the I would Shrieking base, Street King. So I would be the Shrieking Streaking Street King. <laughs> so Frank takes over his commander, he becomes a tyrant, and he institutes unnecessary military routines. Like early revelry and morning calisthenics, you know those useless things like waking up and Which, exercising. Which, by the way, kudos for the doctors on their jumping jacks. Yeah, they I love just... how they're sitting on the hood of a vehicle and just moving their arms up and down. Yeah, but Scott, as a fat man, can't you just go look at him and go, "Man, that still sounds like a little too much." Well, I know I couldn't be doing the jumping. They were just doing the jacks. Right. But still, doing that for a prolonged period of time. Eh. I, I really hope I never need to find anybody. Like, hey, over here. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm too tired. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, me and Scott both took a moment and waved arms above our heads like a bunch of idiots. Uh, now we need a nap. <laughs> I need a nap because yesterday was time change, the worst day of the year. Ah. Uh. I love it. I love this time change. So, Hawkeye and Trapper and a few others gather in the mess tent to discuss how they're going to murder Frank. Uh, They're going to either poison him or shove him into some chopper blades. (laughs) Or a mixture of the two. But, uh, Hawkeye decides for once that he's not going to commit some horrendous felony. Uh, and says that the best way to do this is clearly to get Frank replaced by Henry. That's the worst way to probably put that. To get Henry back so Frank can't be little little Hitler anymore. Little Adolf. I think they got it. I like how you took my joke and you just changed the name. I know, I did. That's, that's a nice one. So um, and how to get Henry back? How to bring Henry home? That actually would have been a good, uh, a good title for the show. So Radar just so happens to have uh, two passes to Tokyo on him, which I'm pretty sure last week we talked about how Hawkeye pretended to be insane in order to get a couple of day passes to Tokyo. So I don't know why he didn't just go to Radar in the first place, but <laughs> they wouldn't have had a show. He only has day passes when the plot calls for it. (laughs) Hawkeye and Trapper go to Tokyo, and they find Henry in a big old bath with a bunch of half-naked Asian women around him, bathing him. It's real, real nice. And uh, Tell you what, it'd be nice if they would sing. Now, we need to talk just for a minute about what happened here, because 
Henry is in this bathtub, as you're one to do. I mean, you don't go to Tokyo without getting a, a rub down from an Asian lady. That's just basically... Set the rule. I mean, you know how you go to Hawaii, they put like a lei around your neck, that flower necklace? Mm-hmm. When you go to Tokyo, the first thing you do when you get off a plane is get into a big bathtub and an Asian lady bathes you. It's wow. considered rude not to. Um, <laughs> but, but Henry's in there just enjoying it, and then all of a sudden, Trapper and Hawkeye pop up out of the water. <laughs> They're just like, hey, Henry. And Henry is totally not nonplussed by this. He, he could care less that there are two other grown men in this giant bathtub with him. And how I long thought, were they I holding their... Drowned. And how long were they holding their breath underneath there before coming up and being like, Hi, Henry, we're here. It's creepy. Not only that, but Hawkeye just keeps spinning around. He does. He just keeps turning around in circles, like in between every one of his lines for no reason. See, this is more like 60s behavior, not 50s. And so... Hello everyone, this is Zach from the Editing Bay in the future from when this episode was recorded. And for some reason, I kept calling Henry Blake uh, Frank during this entire part. So, for your listening pleasure and to keep everything uh, keep everything right and easy to follow, I'm going to flawlessly replace every single Frank with the word Henry. They're just in a bathtub with Henry. As he's being washed by an Asian lady. And they're like, Henry, you probably should come back. And Henry. He's like, no! You kidding me? You mean Colonel Colonel Blake. Colonel Blake should come back. Yes. Colonel Frank. Yeah. Frank Blake. Is that his name? Frank Blake. No. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> they're like, Henry. Come on back, man. We need you back. And he's like, I'm not going back. I've got Asian ladies rubbing me. Why would I go back? <laughs> so you're crazy? And then they're out of the bathtub, and they're still having this conversation trying to get Henry back to the 4077th. But this time, Henry has a, a leggy Asian lady stepping on his back, which I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like feet, but that sounds so good. Not an Asian lady, just anybody stepping on my back. I love it. <laughs> Like, Joseph... He, Next time I, I see you, I'll help you out with that. I always pretend like uh, it hurts, so he keeps doing it and does it rougher. But I'll put Joseph on my back and have him just do, like, an Irish step dance on mm-hmm. there. It just feels great. I don't blame him. Just and so you up a little bit. And so, uh, Henry. Still like, no, I'm not going back. I am not going back to the 4077th. I've got, I've got, I've got a lady I've got on my back. I've got girls to walk on my back. Right. And then they're treated to uh, a, a, a nice duet between two other uh, women who are dressed as stereotypical geishas, uh, singing a, a terrible rendition of an already terrible song. I don't, I didn't recognize the song. You were coming out of bake the cake, out of bake the cake, out of bake the cake. If somebody said that to me, I would immediately leave their house, wait a day, call them in the morning, being like, "Hey, I'm coming over." Because I want some... <laughs> Can you bake me a cake? Because I want some cake. <laughs> don't, t- don't, t- don't tell me about the cake that might have been. Tell me, about the, tell me about call the... Call somebody and be like, I'm coming over. Can you bake me a cake? If I knew you were... If the, title, the title of the song is literally, If I Knew You Were Coming, I'd Have Baked a Cake. It's not Bake mm-hmm. a Cake or If I Knew You Were Coming. The whole title of the song is If I Knew You Were Coming, I Would Bake a Cake. And it was written by Al Hoffman and originally recorded by Eileen Barton. The lyrics of this song are, Well, 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 look who's here. I haven't seen you in many a year. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake, said three times. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. How'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you do? Had you dropped me a letter, I'd have hired a band. Grandest band in the land. And spread the welcome mat for you. Now, I don't know where you came from, because I don't know where you've been, but it really doesn't matter. Grab a chair and fill your platter and dig, dig, dig right in. And then he talks about Baking a cake and hiring a band, goodness sake. And then there's another few how'd you do's in there. 
And uh, then we're back to uh, if you drop me a letter again, uh, but but this time that's not a band they're hiring. They're going to hire a hall, a great big hall, band and all. If you drop me a letter, I'd have hired a hall. Now, I don't know where you came from. Again, we're going to dig into the platter. If I knew you were coming, I'd have kept the pot. Are they referring to what they had to pee in? or No. If I knew you were coming, I'd have kept the pot, coffee pot, nice and hot. Ah. Well, that's okay, Eileen Barton. You can just warm it up. It's okay. So, is Eileen Barton still alive? I have I need... no idea. If she is... Eileen Barton. If she is, we're going to give her a call and tell her we're on our way over. She needs to bake us a cake. Nah, she's she's very dead. She's very, very dead. She died in 2006. Oh, wow. And unfortunately, Eileen Barton was best known for her 1950 hit song, If I Knew You Were Coming, I'd Have Baked a Cake. <laughs> <laughs> so they're listening to these two uh, lovely geishas singing about... Uh, Thinking about bacon cake, cake, which they're, they're, it's pretty clear they're in a brothel right now. So, I mean, what kind of brothel doesn't have cake? <laughs> they need to rethink. We need to restructure their entire business plan. I mean, I'm just saying, you get hungry, you need some cake. But that's when Hawkeye receives a phone call during this concert, and over the phone. Radar says, hey, I don't have to make up actual medical things here, uh, do I? Because I don't know that much. And Hawkeye's like, oh no, it's a tough case. Pain in the abdomen? Can't keep food down? And then he goes over to, to Trapper. He's like, we gotta get out of here. We have we have a diagnostic problem back at the 4077. And, uh, and then Trapper goes, is, is Radar really that bad? And that's when Frank perks up, going, my little Radar... My little radar poo. Which, by the way, I, I, we, we forgot to mention this. When Frank was saying goodbye to everybody after moving to Tokyo, it, radar comes up and yeah, says goodbye. And Frank, or, or, in tra- or in, and Henry kind of gets... Colonel Blake. Yeah, shut up. And Henry kind of gets uh, choked up about leaving, leaving radar, but he can't bring himself to say goodbye. All he does is punch him in the face and call him a little monkey. <laughs> See you later, you little monkey. I mean... <laughs> I know that now just... poor Radar is at that point where he's got one foot in a grave and one on a banana peel. Right, and 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 Henry knows he's the best diagnostic or diagnostician in all of whatever town he's from. So he needs to go back and and save Radar. And when they get there, Radar's in real rough shape. He's just hemming and hauling and crying. Everything's causing him pain. So Frank's like, I know what I need to do. Cut him open. Cut him open. <laughs> Cut him open? Maybe you should wait a while, Henry. Yeah. And, and But Frank's like, listen, we're not doing exploratory surgery in my mash. I'm I'm the I'm the leader of this year outpost now. You can't just be cutting open my assistants willy nilly. Henry. It's like, I'm going to, even if I have to go over your head and, and call, uh, uh, or call, or call, uh, what's his name? Colonel Hammond? Mm-hmm. It's like, if I have to call Colonel Hammond, I will. And Radar's like, I'll call him for you, sir. And he gets out of bed perfectly fine and, uh, <laughs> starts dialing the phone, therefore blowing his cover. That's when Henry demands to know what's going on, and Hawkeye explains that they just wanted him back, and Radar's fake illness was designed to make him feel wanted. That's exactly how I feel like you should get anybody back. Hey, we just wanted you to feel like you were wanted. Fake a death. You're not actually wanted here, but we need you to feel that way. Yeah. Well, it's better than the option, which is Frank. True. Now, Frank wants to call the MPs to arrest Hawkeye and Trapper, but Henry stops them because he's decided to come back and take over because I'm pretty sure that's how the army works, that if you just want to leave one post and go to another, all you got to do is go, and they'll give it to you. Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal there were some orders. They're just small details. 
Now, here's some research notes slash fun facts from this episode. In this episode, Henry is transferred to Tokyo, which he would have had to pass the Sea of Japan to get to Tokyo. He is later forced by Hawkeye and Trapper to return to MASH. In Season 3, Henry would then be later discharged and sent home. However, on his way to Tokyo to catch his next flight, his plane from Korea was shot down. This would mean, had Hawkeye and Trapper just... Listen, no, this is what's messed up. This would mean, had Hawkeye and Trapper just left Henry alone, he would most likely would have made it home alive when he was finally discharged. Isn't that a fun fact? (laughs) Man, land. I'm taking some Prozac when I get home. This this whole it's a little macabre. Um, here's here's one other fact. There's an anachronism here. Do you need to look that word up, Scott? Anachronism. Anachronism, no, because you're gonna tell me what that means. Well, an anachronism is something in a historical set piece that doesn't belong. Like, if you're doing an alien autopsy scene from the 40s, and the phones in the office have spiraled uh, telephone cords, then that's an Mm -hmm. anachronism, because they only had straight cords until whenever they decided to make them spirally. All right, here's the anachronism. See, I want to see if you caught this, Scott. While faking his illness, Radar is shown to be reading Captain Savage Number 10, a comic book from January 1969. But the episode, of course, is of course is set in 1951. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, I didn't notice that. Okay, here's another one. Uh, the helicopter Henry uses to get back to the 4077th is a French Aero Patiel Alet II, which only came out in 1955 and was never used by the U.S. Armed Forces. Ugh, who do they have <laughs> fact checking this show? Bunch of ignorant nincompoops, if you ask me. <laughs> What were they thinking? All right, now I'm going to play a selection of music, probably our theme song, as we transition over to the next episode that we're reviewing in this episode. Woohoo! Episode 10 of Season 1 of Cheers was brought to you by All County. Norm. All County Car Insurance. For those who can't afford the state, try All County. All right, let's get into this. time for a good murder mystery. Episode number 10 of Season 1, titled, I Hate a Mystery. And Scooby-Doo just went, Ruh-roh. It's a mystery. <laughs> There's a rash of thefts that break out in the camp, including Frank's silver picture frame that he puts around his mother, Margaret's hairbrush that she puts on Frank's mother, and Trapper's watch that he stole from Frank's mother. One sentence covers a lot of things. A lot of people are missing stuff, but it it, it, it skipped right past the, the nuance that you have of Frank finding out or noticing that his his silver picture frame of his mom is missing, to which he then runs into Hot Lips uh, Hot Lips's tent to complain that his silver picture frame is missing. And she's in rollers and has face cream all over her face, and she stands up and screams, and Frank goes, Oh, you look awful. <laughs> well, he wasn't lying. <laughs> she did. I mean, sure, but still, Frank... So everybody's missing something, right? And so Henry has to go on a, on a, he just has to go and and scrounge around in everybody's stuff in order to find out where all this stuff is missing. And he brings Radar with him, and Radar has to, Radar has to hold a bunch of underpants while Henry goes through and searches their underpants of the nurses, because that was something that, what needed to be done, um, he went into a shower to check the shower nozzle head, and when he checked the nozzle head, it turned on inexplicably for absolutely no reason, so he got a big old face full of water. It was hilarious. Uh, he went into the, the swamp and checked their oven, their wood fire oven that kept him warm, and a bunch of soot fell on his face, and I felt bad for the actor that played uh, uh, Henry during this because you could tell that a lot of this soot-like stuff got into his eyes. 
and his eyes his were eyes, streaming yeah. pretty terribly, and he was blinking because he was in a severe amount of pain, I imagine. Uh, but he held it together. Good for him. And it's only when Henry opens up Hawkeye's footlocker that all the stuff has been found. And everybody's like, ugh, Hawkeye. We hate that guy now. Who cares about his sexual oh, harassment? He did it. And the fact that he has stolen so many things, including a desk that needed to be insured. But now we think he's a thief. Stealing, that crosses the line. Which he is. <laughs> he is very much so a thief. <laughs> so everybody's mad and disappointed at Hawkeye. Now Hawkeye isn't going to take this line down because he knows, knows he's not a thief. And Frank and Margaret are real quick to, to bring him up on the... How many episodes this? Ten? The 10th court-martial he's been brought up uh, against in so many episodes. Uh, it was a court-martial a week back in the 70s. Right. Uh, but Hawk is like, I'm going to... Before I get court-martialed, I'm going to figure this out. And so he's tricky, and he is able to uh, make Henry tell him where all of the stolen items, the evidence is being kept. And as Henry's doing this, he's like, they're in my desk. But Hawkeye secretly turned on the, the PA system. So everyone heard, including the thief, hey, all the stolen items are in Henry's desk. And Hawkeye was like, and I managed to contact uh, CIA or CSI back home, and they're going to send me some fingerprint and stuff. So I'm going to fingerprint all this stuff tomorrow to find out who the real thief is. And wouldn't you know it, the, that sneaky thief came in and stole that evidence right out of Henry's desk. And so later on that evening, real late, Hawkeye calls a meeting of all of the people that we care about in MASH. No background characters here, just those that we deem important. And he's like, I know who did it, because I sprayed all of this stuff with something that sounds chemically that he made up. Like Hydra Cordidavazaplan Asamino Solution. And he's like, oh, don't you know what this is? It's stuff that, that when you touch it, turns your fingernails blue. And then he looks around and little Ho-John, the male moose. I don't know what else to say about him. He's just some poor North Korean <laughs> castaway that that lives in the swamp and does whatever Hawkeye, Trapper, and in this season, in this season alone, uh, Dr. Jones wants him to do. And Hawkeye, or Ho-John hides his hands because he's afraid his fingernails are blue. And then... Hawkeye's like, let me see your fingernails, Ho-John. And Ho-John's like, see? No blue. Which, that's how they make them talk, guys. That's how they made... Ho-John is probably a, a guy who's named, like, like Daniel Wong, who grew up in Sacramento. And they're making him talk, like, see? No blue, Miss Trapai. So Ho-John Ho hides his hands, and Hawkeye's like, look, it's not going to turn. I made that up. All right, there's no no nothing that's gonna turn your blue or turn you blue. I was bluffing, but now everybody knows you're a little thief, Ho John. And you know this show, Scott. When somebody gets caught committing a crime in this show, the the book is just brought down on them. Right? They just throw the book uh, at yeah, them. Yeah. I'm just kidding. It doesn't matter if you're trying to murder uh, Henry in a helicopter, whether or not you're poisoning uh, Frank Burns, or whether you're staging a rape. You do not get in trouble in the 4077th, and Ho-John is no different. Everyone just lets him keep their prized family heirlooms so that he can raise money to bribe the border guard so he can bring his family from the north to the south. And that's it. That's the whole episode. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's it. Um, my favorite line in this episode was where Hawkeye had mentioned... Ill-gotten booty, or booty ill-gotten. Here's some fun facts. <laughs> uh, for the nightly meeting, Hawkeye calls everybody's name that he wants there, mm -hmm. and he calls everybody 
but Hojon. But Hojon comes anyways, which is good because if Hojon wasn't there, then uh, they wouldn't have been able to accuse him of theft. They never would have been found out, or he wouldn't have. Also, Radar enters the mess tent as uh, his name is being called, which is a kind of a funny thing because Radar, of course, is, as we've talked about, has divination, is able to foresee the future as long as that future is like four seconds ahead of time. Also, this was uh, the first appearance of Radar's teddy bear. Mm-hmm. Which he will, he will snuggle for the rest of the show. Radar has a teddy bear. It's real cute. Radar's just an adorable little short man. Hey, I, I messed up. This is the line. Hawkeye said, A most perplexing riddle, calling for the most ingenious of solutions. Thus I made it publicly known that there were fingerprints to be found on the stolen articles, thereby tempting the criminal to repeat his crime and retrieve his ill-gotten booty, or his ill-booten gotti, which he has done. However, in so doing, he has exposed himself. Yeah, and then Frank covers up his junk. That's a funny line. Frank, co- yeah, Frank co- closes his robe. Oh, here it is: hydrochloric alpha teracin. Here's another couple of of, of cultural references for you. Uh, Les Miserables is mentioned in a PA announcement as a tale of a man who steals and is relentlessly pursued, sort of like somebody we all know, pointing to the theory of Hawkeye being the thief. Oh boy. Mm-mm-mm. Also, we have another anachronism here. Oh boy. It's possible boo, 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 boo. It's possible that the Les Miserables reference was anachronistic. There was a 1952 version of the film, but it's doubtful that such a new movie would have made its way out to a mass unit in Korea so soon after release, particularly so early in the series. Oh, boy. They sure messed up there again. <laughs> I'm really enjoying these fun facts and anachronisms because I just imagine that some nerd somewhere, like, with giant glasses on, is like, I can't believe they did that. Actually, the 1952 Actually. version of the film, they wouldn't have made it to the match yet because it was just too early in the theaters. <laughs> what a dork. Good stuff. What a dork. So I was asking, did you like this episode? Is it, uh, of the ten we've seen, one of your favorites, one of your least favorites? I mean, it's not one of my least favorites. There was nothing problematic really in it. It is, but it's, I mean, it's an episode of MASH. It's just... Okay. You know, it's nothing, mm-hmm. nothing great, nothing terrible. Nothing horrible. It's just could be ep- worse, could be better. Just an episode of MASH. All right. For Mash and Sackcloth, I'm Zach Geiler. I'm Scott Judge. And I just want to remind you that I bet your day got a little worse for listening to this, but it could have been but so much worse. For example, your day could have been like March 28, 193 A.D. After a century or so of frequent royal assassinations, the Roman Empire hit a new low on March 28th. 193, when the elite and swaggering Praetorian Guard slaughtered Emperor Pertinax, ruler of just three months, for having dared try to restore order and discipline among their ranks. Then, later the same day, the Guard did something even more infamous when they offered the Imperial Throne to the highest bidder at auction. When this proclamation was known, the ancient historian Herodian of Syria wrote, the more honorable and weighty senators and all persons of noble origin and property would not approach the guard barracks to offer money in so vile a manner for a besmirched sovereignty. But there was one wealthy senator, Didius Julianus, who was not particularly honorable or weighty in the consequential sense. In fact, he was notoriously debauched. Prodded by his ambitious wife and daughter, Julianus rushed over to the barracks to make his bid, The guard, however, wouldn't let him inside, so, standing outside the walls, Julianus shouted his offers against a competing bidder inside the compound, who just happened to be the slain emperor, Pertinax's father-in-law. Having offered a fortune, Julianus eventually won the bidding, although, in this case, winning was relative. The people of Rome were disgusted by the charade. Rather than obeisance, they threw rocks at the new emperor, 
and, as Herodian reported, hooted and reviled him as having bought the throne with lucre at an auction. Two months later, Septimus Severus deposed him. But what evil have I done? Julianus reportedly cried as he was dragged away to be beheaded. Whom have I killed? Good night, everybody. There was one time I was I, I I was pretty close to the funeral directors where I was at previously, so I'd be called in every once in a while for uh, uh, strangers' funerals and people that didn't have anybody. There's one where I was asked by the director if I wanted to ride with him in the hearse over to the graveside and back, and I asked him, "Will I get to watch the casket go into the hole?" And he said, well, "Yeah, we can't leave until the vault's sealed." So it's going to take a while. And I said, absolutely, I will ride with you. Let's go. Yeah. Because I've always wanted to know what it looked like. Turns out it looked a lot yeah. like a casket being lowered into a hole. That's much to my surprise. <laughs> hey, I got to take this real quick. Hang on. Hello, Miss Kimberlina. Hey, you want to be on our podcast? What? You want to be on our podcast? You're an idiot, Scott. How, how come? Why would I want to be? Well, I don't know. We're doing our podcast right now. I saw it was you, and I said, hey, hold up. Oh, well, I'll let you be then. Well, you, I mean, you can be on the podcast I mean, if you want. Not, we already have 15 minutes of audio with her, so we might as well just keep going. <laughs> Why doesn't Scott talk too much during the podcast? Well, he's like an old person. He's playing games. He uses me he as like very the, talkative tonight. He uses me as like the radio that old people use in, in nursing homes. <laughs> I just talk and talk, and he just likes the feeling of somebody else there. Sometimes. <laughs> it's so true. Not for me, but in general, in, like, old folks' homes.